Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather. Political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is you. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah. It's hey. been a week. Yeah. Um, it's been two it? weeks. Is it? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. it's been two weeks since we recorded. We only released the last episode last week. Oh, yeah, because I was but all over the place. We had editing problems, yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it's like as lockdown goes on. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I live in a small flat because I live in London and there's no space to edit when, you know, other people are working as well. So it's yeah that. So that's why I had to play a load of Diablo instead of editing. <laughs> yeah. um, but I should be able to do this one pretty quick. But yeah, so it today. There's been a lot in the last two weeks. There's been the thing in Liverpool. We'll talk about that probably another time because that's a big issue. Um, I, yeah, that's um, that's something. Um, I mean, since we since we last recorded, obviously the last thing we talked about was the Clapham Common protests, and hmm. since then uh, there's been the traditional kind of spread of protests and crackdown on yeah. that protest. Yeah, um, and the police have absolved themselves today. Um, said that they did nothing wrong. Did lot. There was I saw on the news that they were saying that the media have actually harmed the public perception of the police force. Um, Oh yeah, all those, all those fucking abolish the police tabloids. Yeah, yeah, um, and like the BBC do they mean just... by media? They mean just the the like the actual word media, as in videos of coppers stamping on protesters and slamming yeah. their posting... shields down on their hands of fucking shit. Yeah, posting pictures of that of that um, ginger woman being arrested and things like that. You know that, and saying like, oh, this is just social media people, people who aren't fully in in um, possession of all the facts. Just going off willy-nilly with their abolish the police rhetoric. None of this is, you know, based in fact. And, you know, read our report where we talked to a bunch of policemen who said they were shouting at us and so we had to hit them. (laughs) And, like, like the stuff that they considered abuse was um, there were people shouting, arrest your own at them and um, try not to rape any women (laughs) at them, (laughs) which they considered justification for going in hard on a bunch of women <laughs> it's it's surprising because like obviously the police have always been like this and mm. like i feel at the moment that the only thing we end up really being able to do is to just keep reminding people of the history yeah and that this is not unique mm. it's, well it's, it, everything is unique but it's not unprecedented you know it's it's not a a new thing mm. But at the same time, like the apps that their absolute hostility, like in the way that you saw in the US, mm-hmm. um, it went from like the first day it's like standoffs, and then eventually they actually go in very very hard mm. um, after a, like a couple of days or a couple of different protests, and it's like, oh no, they don't give a shit about what uh, appears on video anymore, actual no. documented video evidence. They don't give a shit. It's like it's it's that has happened now. Mm. What I thought was you know? quite. Um, upsetting and shows like just how far we've come was they announced today that you know we did nothing wrong believe us we talked to policemen when we're only a couple of days away from when the head of Avon and Somerset police said oh yeah when we said those policemen had broken ribs and like broken arms um yeah we we didn't that wasn't happen that didn't happen <laughs> it's like, I mean it didn't it didn't happen it didn't get reported it didn't get transmitted into the public consciousness it's I feel like a lot of the kind of media events, like what happened in the election, actually, I think that maybe not a watershed, but a, a certainly a teachable, teachable moment mm. that like, 
Oh yeah, no, like uh, Momentum Thugs uh, smacked Matt Hancock around. Yeah, and it's like no, they didn't. Someone got shoved and pushed and fell over. No, and he, it's like no, that. Didn't, it wasn't that even that. Happened. He walked into an arm. <laughs> yeah, and it, uh, an assistant yeah. to Matt Hancock walked yeah. into an arm. Um, and yeah, like the and it absolutely doesn't matter because what happened was Momentum Thugs stormed uh, the Department of Health, <laughs> um, flew the held Matt Hancock. Held Matt Hancock down and started giving him wet willies and slapping him around the face. <laughs> giving him swirlies. Yeah, it still like upsets me that we're so... Like, the election, anything that happened there, like pensioners being thrown over cars who were door knocking... Like, the abuse that Labour people suffered from door knocking, none, none of that happened. The way that people Although, talk is that the, the hard left are terrifying. And it's, it's, it is being transmitted because as people slowly realise that actually even body cams... Yeah. Even body cams don't matter. Yeah. Even showing your badge number doesn't matter. Yeah. They only get more emboldened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, you are giving... Like, this isn't even... Like, even... This isn't even like um, like cop bashing or whatever. This is just basic. No, these people do need actual standards yeah. because now what you're getting is there's absolutely no standards. It's all, it's all it's always been like the thing of I don't understand like value neutral like abolish the police stuff aside. I don't understand how such a militaristic organization has such a lack of discipline to its written down rules now Mm -hmm. that's naivety i know of course the real state is that they have never had that oversight they are an institution in themselves they look out for themselves all of that yeah but there is absolutely no fucking discipline and this the example of this of having it literally videoed yeah of them bringing their shields down on people which is a banned tactic by the way they're not even according to their own regulations they're not allowed to do it to chop them with the shields not allowed to do it. But it doesn't matter. And there is no account of that taken. There's not even the slightest lap on the wrist. Mm. It's as if it never happened. You saw Ian Austin. You can... Oh yeah, no, of course. The, and, Ian Austin and... deleting that tweet saying, I just hope they didn't hurt they didn't damage their shields and battles. I'll be perfectly honest, I'm surprised Ian Austin even deleted it. What yeah. has he got to lose by tweeting it? Exactly. What has he got to lose by holding that kind of thing? It's like whatever protest happens. Mm it is always legitimate for the police to bash their heads in. It yeah. doesn't matter whether they're violent, doesn't matter whether they're sitting, standing. If they have a political cause and are out in public, mm. they deserve to be bashed. Yeah. On a very vulgar like interest level, of course it benefits him. If he wants his Labour Party back, if he wants his particular brand of whatever it is Ian Austin <laughs> believes back, wrestled from the people who he believes have usurped him in his own place... Of course you'd want it. Everyone in everyone on the Labour right would want it because the people who are in Bristol getting battered now are the ones that form the core of the left going mm. forward. Yeah. This this experience isn't going to make you more in, more pleasantly inclined to the police. It's not going to no. make you stop. No. And I think like that like Labour Party don't know that, but police certainly do. Yeah. And they don't give a shit because they'll just come back and do it again and again. Mm. And it's, um what's the other one I saw? Oh yeah, it was um Lloyd Russell Moyle. Is it Lloyd Russell Moyle? Yeah, the head of the socialist campaign group equating violence against protesters with violence against property. <laughs> oh, I, didn't see, I, didn't, I didn't see that. What did he say? Oh, he was, say, he was saying that, you know, like, violence against against um, protesters is wrong. 
but so also is violence against police cars and damage damage to buildings and stuff like that. Just that standard, which which you'd expect from the Labour, like they are, they are, they like. He is an MP. He is in an institution of the state. Yeah, you didn't need to say that though. Of course it, of course it does. You know, like I don't expect anything else from them. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if there was, if there was any desire from the Labour Party at all left to keep the likes of us or the people in Bristol on side, he didn't need to say that. He didn't need to say that actually it's the same when you smash up a police car when they chop your legs. Because you don't it's because you don't matter to them. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, um, the government released uh, two documents, the mm. Integrated Review and Defence Review, and I really wanted to like have a look at it. This is yeah. like, usually they produce uh, like a national security review every five years or so, mm. and like a kind of outline of global strategy. It, it never really tells you the whole story because with ev- as with everything with the British state, the, the actual doing yeah. is what you actually need to look at, not what they, not what they say about it. Yeah. Um, but this, it's called the Integrated Review because they actually uh, combined their usual national security and global strategy um, review and then kind of published an extra defence review on top of that. Okay. Um, I'm mainly going to talk about the Integrated Review. The defence review is is basically two big headlines. It's firstly that um, the army would be reduced to 72,000 personnel, um, which is a level I don't think they've been at since the late 18th century i.e. like before the Napoleonic War. Hmm. Um, there was some talk about this, but I mean, also like it, a lot of people have reported it as like a 10,000, um, like 10,000 uh, less personnel yeah. in the army. But actually like their their top capacity at the moment is 82,000 and they've never been managed to actually reach that okay. because that's they just haven't been able to recruit. <clears throat> um, so it's more like kind of adjusting down. I think they're at about 76,000. So actually they're only adjusting down by about 4,000. Okay. Um, the other um, big banner headline was the um, increase in the nuclear stockpile. So <laughs> they had the British state had been winding down its nuclear stockpile. Um, they were due to reduce it to 180 kind of stockpiled warheads. That's not active warheads. That's ones that are ready to be activated. Um, but this many, is going to be increased many, to um, 260. How many nukes can fit on a Trident submarine? Uh, shit, I did go through this, but I've completely forgotten. I think it's eight lots with four warheads each. Okay, so... I think so that's warheads rather than missiles, so because the, idea the missiles of like, can kind of split. Yeah, so the idea of this, like, a, a larger stockpile. So we're nuclear hellscape time, and, you know, mm. nukes are being fired. So we need to have a stockpile so the submarines can fire them, go back to Scotland, re-up on them, go back out, fire some more, and because of increasing the stockpile, they'll be able to do that a couple of times. You would presume, right, if you were a reasonable person, you would presume that nuclear weapon technology was at a stage where they would be flexible enough that you could mount them on planes or their like, actual bombs, yeah. their, their things, or their exist rockets. They're not because everything is bought from the US, so they really only can be used like one of a couple of different ways, which is mounting them on an ICBM and shooting them out of a big hole, mm-hmm. or putting them on a submarine. Um, I think the idea being that any crisis, 
that would require nukes would be long running enough, like, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis lasted, what, 13? It was 13 days, wasn't mm-hmm. it? That you'd have enough of a run-up that you, if anything was seriously going to happen, you would have the week or so that you needed to spin up capacity. <laughs> Um, it's, it's to be honest, strapping nukes to things. <laughs> it's like we've got so yeah. many. I've got so many. I've got to use them. <laughs> like Gorkaborka. Yeah. You just find some jeeps, find some Land Rovers, <laughs> strap them on the top there, strap them on the back of a grot. You sneakily put one on the parliamentary mace. <laughs> so the last thing that when Britain's completely destroyed, the last thing that happens is someone smashes the mace down <laughs> on the speaker's chair, and then the bomb goes off. And then we're done. And then we're done. That's it. Finished. Credit roll. <laughs> um, I don't really understand too much about uh, defense stuff, other than other than the nuke reading that I did for that episode a few mm-hmm. months ago. Um, but I've read a few like an analysts of the defense changes, and they seem mostly to be motivated by cost. Um, like the U.S. military, the British Armed Forces has a massive overspend on mm-hmm. like uh, equipment and vehicles because they're buying it all from defense contractors. Yeah. Um, and it seems like this reduction, they're not only reducing forces, but they're also combining some brigades into okay. what they're calling like rapid reaction forces. So essentially you're going to have like um, a strike force, which they, they describe as it will be able to undertake like strategic raiding. Um, essentially, what that, essentially what that means is um, they won't be fighting any more wars. There's no yeah. pitched battle wars, occupying territory. Um there's probably a couple of reasons for this, and one of them is probably related to this kind of second thing that they were doing, which is designating some regiments as super-duper special forces in order to sell their expertise and their training capabilities to other governments. Fantastic. They'll be specifically for... They'll essentially be the travelling salesman for BAE Systems. Awesome. Um, awesome. And, and it means that, yeah, those... those uh, the, the, a lot of the stuff they kind of announced, they've been trailing for years, and this just seems like another step on the way. Mm-hmm. And the logic seems to be the British Army is not going to fight ground wars anymore. They're going to rely on technology, small strikes, sustaining other training other states' armies, and the nuclear deterrent. Yeah. You know, there won't be another specific Afghan or Iraq war. Hmm. You know? Um and I guess, you know, um, this was covered on Sky News, I saw at the time, um, as like promoting the like promoting the use of emerging technologies. A joke that was literally made in Yes, Prime Minister <laughs> 40 years ago? Yeah, must be 40 years ago, probably 19, mid-1980s, early 1980s, um, yes. about, yeah, having emerging, emerging technologies rather than nukes. Yeah. But um, Sky News also presented like, oh, well, also we'll be uh, introducing the use of private companies into the British Army. Nice. Kind of suggesting that that's a technology as well, privatisation. <laughs> <laughs> We're going for this really innovative new form of um, of warfare. We're using dog soldiers. <laughs> I mean, I think you soldiers of fortune. <laughs> you mentioned it to me at the time. Like, there's a reasonable there's a reasonable case for thinking that that is exactly what they will be. That they will just, um, especially if you're say really close allies or economically dependent on countries that have quite a lot of problems with smaller armed groups mm-hmm. that don't really uh, want to follow your particular state yeah. and could say, sell <laughs> those brigades to, to intervene against like um, paramilitary groups. Yeah. Like well, that, that's what it will be for. 
Like, and you can charge a price. Um, what's his name? Captain Tom smiling down from heaven as we send troops back into Myanmar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder what it is, what it means for like a country that it's army myth. Every country has an army myth, of course. Like, yeah, stronger or stronger or weaker. But Britain has an especially strong army myth. Of course, it does. It's had the same, had basically the same army since the fucking sixteen hundreds. You know, mm-hmm. it's. It was its imperial army. It was its state army during the two largest wars that have ever been fought. I, I definitely understand that, and like that culture that grew up was is basically the culture of a mass army. Yeah. Like, how many people think problems are solved by um, uh, national service? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and what does it mean for a country obsessed with the army and with the like sanctity of its members? Mm. To, I mean, not only to have its numbers cut, but also like by all accounts actually not provide that great services for them. I'm yeah. going to assume that this doesn't mean that like soldiers coming out of the army are going to be treated that much better. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not going to have uh, like better housing on bases and stuff like that. Not to get all Labour Party about it. <laughs> um, and also like to say to that army, oh, by the way, you're all going to be replaced with drones in like five years time. Yeah. We are the party, of the, we are the patriotic party of the military, the Tories. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I don't I don't understand how this ever gets communicated. You know the army's been dwindling for fucking years. All mm. of our myths are based around the idea of this all-in popular military force. I guess I suppose you can sell the like glamour and mystique of special forces of elite forces. Mm. You know they're they're easier stories to tell. You know your Bravo Two Zeros are easier and more heroic stories to tell as propaganda than um. The, the mass experience, which no one can relate to anymore, and you have to make historical, like yeah. with 1917 and Dunkirk and all that. So it's yeah. a, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing, you know? Mm. Um, so uh, just finishing off about nuclear weapons, um, mm-hmm. there was actually one bit in the integrated review, which is the larger review of Britain's foreign policy and diplomacy and all that kind of stuff that I'm going to go into in a second. But uh, the nuclear weapons section of that report seems to belong here. Uh, a bit more um there was this little tidbit about nuclear weapons in the integrated review quote while our resolve and capability to do so if necessary is beyond doubt we will remain deliberately ambiguous about precisely when how and at what scale we would contemplate the use of nuclear weapons (laughs) yes you that face is correct over discord Given the changing security and technological environment, we will extend this long-standing policy of deliberate ambiguity and no longer give public figures for our operational stockpile, deployed warhead, or deployed missile numbers. <laughs> this ambiguity complicates the calculations of potential aggressors, reduces the risk of deliberate nuclear use by those seeking a first-strike advantage, and contributes to strategic stability. Is that the whole point of the doomsday machine is lost? If you keep it a secret, why didn't you tell the world, eh? It was to be announced at the party congress on Monday. As you know, the Premier loves surprises. Not telling the people who you are supposed to be deterring what you have on them means that they are not deterred and therefore (laughs) act as if you you didn't have any nukes. You fucking idiots. I may or may not have a gun in my pocket. It might be a gun or a banana. 
so yeah, like overall, the integrated review published uh, was it published about a week before the defense review. It was published on the 16th of March. It was a much more in-depth report outlining the threats faced and the changes in global environment that the UK is expected to operate under. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more interesting, and by interesting, I mean you really have to look for it. Um, it's uh, it's not well written. <laughs> oh boy. Um, the report was officially delayed um, from last year due to officially due to COVID. Um, yeah. But I do wonder it, if it was waiting to see who would be U.S. president, yeah. whether it would be Trump or Biden. I don't know that it would have actually changed it, um, but that's the only that's one of the reasons I can think of. Um, so you'd expect that after Brexit, um, this would be like this is the big like geopolitical game plan, a massive shift okay. in emphasis, new alliance, new enemies, new adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, but the startling thing, as as I was reading through it, was just how fucking samey it was. Yeah. Like, the continuity, the actual stuff that's in there, but the way it's written, it is full of fucking buzzwords, cliches, proper corporate technocratic language. Oh, um, and it feels like it could have been drafted in 1998. I, I swear there is literally nothing different, other than maybe like the anti- like stuff about Russia and stuff about China yeah. specifics. Like the the language and the attitude is just civil service language okay so the report's called um global britain in a competitive age um which already kind of raises the question what is it that they see the need to compete over mm-hmm. um it's got a foreword from boris johnson that opens uh open and democratic societies like the uk must demonstrate they are match fit for a more competitive world we must show that the freedom to speak, think, and choose, and therefore to innovate, offers an inherent advantage. Sorry, it's him know. using words like match fit, and it just all... Oh, if, yeah. Whenever he does, yeah, like, anything like that, it is a pretty accurate description of Britain, the um, Boris Johnson playing rugby, pushing over a child. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've looked at the discourse recently, but freedom of speech being a driver of innovation and newness. <laughs> Not exactly borne out. If you've ever read a paper in the last 20 years. Um, uh, He continues, uh, liberal democracy and free markets remain the best model for the social and economic advancement of humankind. History has shown that democratic societies are the strongest supporters of an open and resilient international order in which global institutions prove their ability to protect human rights, manage tensions between great powers, address conflict, instability and climate change and share prosperity through trade and investment. That open and resilient international order is, in turn, the best guarantor of security for our own citizens. Um, So this is the theme of most of the rest of this report. It seems to be something approaching a return to the liberal world order and a sort of return to that end of history. I mean, end of history for us and continuation of history for the rest of you poor bastards. Um, This idea that the global system, the liberal world order is Mm. like... Oh no, yeah, it's still like 1998, everything's fine, everything's settled, we've decided what the political and economic system is now, but the rest of the world just keeps failing our lofty standards. Um, And it's surprising, I thought maybe there might be some kind of Brexit language in there, some globalism, some transnational shadowy elites, where is it? It's nowhere, it's just same cliches about globalisation and how everything's going to be all right. Because two countries that have never uh, have a McDonald's have never gone to war with each other. Yep. Um, uh, he continues to be open. We must also be secure, protecting our people, our homeland, and our democracy is the first duty of any government. So I have begun the biggest program of investment in defence since the end of the Cold War. This will demonstrate to our allies in Europe and beyond that they can always count on the UK when it really matters. <laughs> Again, 
applying back to the club, dispelling any ideas that the UK is going to try and like retreat in any way. And mm. not that I think anyone really thought that, that was going to happen, but yeah. I don't know. With Brexit, you never know. Mm. Um, as the attacks in Manchester, London and Reading have sadly demonstrated, the terrorist threat in the UK remains all too real, whether Islamist-inspired, Northern Ireland-related, or driven by other motivations. That was really weird. Mm. Terror attacks are inspired by Islamism but terror attacks are related to Northern Ireland. Hmm. It's a very... Like the, North, the, the, like, the conflict in Northern Ireland is just like, oh, no, that's always going to be there. Yeah. So, therefore, if there is a terror attack, it's related to it, this hmm. immovable object. Yeah. Weird. The UK will remain a leader in... Uh, a world leader in international development, and we will return to our commitment to spend 0.7 of gross national income on development when the fiscal situation allows. Now... <laughs> When Do the you fucking... situation allows, doing a lot of heavy lifting there. If you have been paying attention to politics over the past... I'd say it's probably been an issue since Cameron, so like 10 years. That 0.7 figure is like yeah. the perfect political wedge issue. If yeah. you hate it, it's all you fucking talk about because it's all the fucking newspapers talk about. Whenever it's reduced, the other side comes up. The Liberals come up and say, this is a disgusting... Th- I cannot believe we are stopping spending 0.7% of our national income on... I mean, also, a lot of it goes to upper-middle-income countries to help train their security forces and give them money to buy stuff off of us. So I don't really know that it's that important. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, but also they had a big banner kind of reduction in overseas aid. Uh, mm. Last summer, I think, they reduced it to 0.5%. Yeah. And, like, just sneakily in this, oh, no, yeah, it's going to go back to 0.7. Hmm. You know? Um, this was something, this was an issue that always comes up with, like, the Guardian's trips to Mansfield. Yeah. Or something. It's like, oh, it's all the overseas aid. Yeah. It's all the overseas aid going somewhere. Um, and it's one of those issues that no one cares about until their attention is drawn to it. Yeah. You know? 100%. Like, op-eds or talking heads, they're, they're always the things that come up. And it's, like... Surprising, because it really figures that they reckon that this much-talked-about new Tory voter from the Red Wall isn't going to read this report. Hmm. And most likely, at this point, won't appear in any of the media they consume. I mean, it's fucking genius that the media environment has fallen in such a way that people will remember them cutting overseas aid, but they'll put it back. And because we've all resolutely refused to have any longer memory than like a month, you'll be ready to exploit it again next election. Yeah, You need to reduce... You know, when you've been in power for five years and you're like, oh no, now we need to reduce it again. Well, yeah, it's like um, the lockdown that started um, started last winter, um, but wasn't called a lockdown. It was in, it was increasing tears yeah. because they don't impose lockdowns. They just release, lo- they just let us out. Do you know what I mean? Is that, you know, relying on the media just hold, like just hand-holding and helping them and everyone's tiny memories. It, it just goes to show that this magical block of of like social, um, conser- like economic liberals and social conservatives, however you want to call them, mm. that you're obviously, of course, going to hear less and less about in the next few years because mm. they don't exist and they are a media creation. <laughs> but that said, the fact that they are a media creation means that they're not any less real because their identity is purely medicated, predicated on something being said in the newspaper and you being the kind of person who gets ex- exercised about it. Yeah. They only exist when the papers want to. They're a f- perfect fucking political formations. Mm. Unbelievable. 
Um, so Boris continues, uh, well, sums up. In 2021, the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth, one of the two largest warships ever built for the Royal Navy, would a divorced country have a warship this big? <laughs> will lead a British and Allied task group on the UK's most ambitious global deployment for two decades. She will demonstrate our interoperability with allies and partners, in particular the United States, and our ability to project cutting-edge military power in support of NATO and international maritime security. Uh, her deployment will also help the government to deepen our diplomatic and prosperity links with allies and partners worldwide. Worldwide, I love, uh, I love prosperity links, I do. <laughs> I had some last Saturday. Lovely. I also love that's another thing about this report. So the ultimate action of, of this government, whenever they have a problem, is specifically to throw a boat at it. <laughs> problem with migration? Throw a boat at it. Problem with, you know, projecting your power, being a declining world power, there, throw a boat at it. <laughs> so is canal blocked. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we can't do that, I'm afraid. <laughs> So then they continue with, uh, the report continues with like an overview of where, what they consider is important for Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, our departure from the European Union provides a unique opportunity to reconsider many aspects of our domestic and foreign policy, mm-hmm. building on existing friendships, but also looking further afield. We must exploit the freedom that comes with increased independence, such as the ability to forge new free trade deals. Mm-hmm. We must also do more to adapt to major changes in the world around us, including the growing importance of the Indo-Pacific region. This is a this is a term they use a lot. Okay. It's basically a way of saying east of Suez without including China. Okay. <laughs> That's literally it. China is its own section, mm-hmm. but whenever they're mobilizing against China, it's oh we're going to have a presence in the Indo-Pacific region. Okay. <laughs> I assume based around somewhere like Singapore, mm. um, but yeah, could be anywhere. Taiwan. Um, in keeping with our history, the UK will continue to play a leading international role in collective security, multilateral governance, tackling climate change and health risks. We accept the risk that comes with our commitment to global peace and stability, from our tripwire NATO presence in Estonia and Poland, to on-the-ground support for UN peacekeeping and humanitarian relief. Our commitment to European security is unequivocal through NATO, the Joint Expeditionary Force, and strong bilateral relations. Uh, There are few more reliable and credible allies around the world than the UK, with the willingness to confront serious challenges and the ability to turn the dial on international issues of consequence. Uh, It does sound like they're selling stuff. Um, They're 100% selling um, the UK as an indispensable part. But the weird thing is, I mean, this is only really going to be commissioned for Wonks to read and me. Yeah. Um, And it's very much a PR document. Like, this is, oh, no, it's not just that we're signalling that we're doing the same thing as you. It's we're going to write in the same way as you. Yeah. We are part of this. There's a place for you, defence contractor, PR company person. Mm. Um. The integrated review also signals a change of approach. Over the last decade, UK policy has been focused on preserving the post-Cold War rules-based international system, which has greatly benefited the UK and other nations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not some other nations. Mm -hmm. Um, Today, however, the international order is more fragmented, characterised by intensifying competition between states over interests, norms and values. Always competing with states for norms, I am. Uh, A defence of the status quo is no longer sufficient for the decade ahead. 
Our foreign policy rests on strong domestic foundations, in particular our security, resilience and the strength of our economy. It also crucially depends on a bond of trust with the British people. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Just wonderful. (laughs) Polling in the UK shows deep reserves of faith in bodies like the UN and NATO. And the pillars of British defence, such as the armed forces and the nuclear deterrent. Are those polling questions like, do you like NATO or do you like to see babies on fire? I did a little research on whether this was actually the case. Mm-hmm. And it is. Support for, since Brexit, support for NATO has increased. Mm-hmm. Um, February 2020 was the last survey I could find. Favourable reviews of NATO uh, rising from 62 to 65%. Mm-hmm. Fine. However, I did also discover a 2019 YouGov survey that said although British citizens were broadly in favour of NATO membership, less than half could actually tell you what it was for. <laughs> um, they actually put up a, a load of mission statements that could apply to people like the Red Cross or the UN or you know people like that. And I think it was less than half identified the correct kind of broadly true statement of NATO. Are you in favour of NATO? Yes, I love the St John's Ambulance. 100% like that, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I, think, I think people just think of like, because obviously it's the, it's the US alliance. It yeah. is the alliance that the US favours. Yeah. Um, and I think to most people it's more like, oh no, if you're a member of NATO, you're important. It's like being on the Security Council, the UN Security Council. Yeah, I don't know many people who know what NATO is apart from, like, of like our parents' age, the people I mm. know who know what NATO is, is my dad because he was seconded to me and he doesn't like them at all like literally the only person that knows anything about them doesn't like them it's like that thing about the police you know the more you interact with them the less you like them it's the same with nearly every single organization that exists apart from like the nhs oh no that's true the nhs the closer you get to it and you know if you're behind behind the curtain it's it can be really shoddy but you know yeah i know what you mean yeah like, yeah. Um, continues, uh, yet the international order is only as robust, resilient and legitimate as the states that comprise it. Liberal democracies must do more to prove the benefits of openness, free and fair trade, the flow of capital and knowledge, to populations that have grown sceptical about its merits or been inadequately protected in the past from the downsides of globalisation. This means tackling the priority issues, health, security, economic well-being and the environment, that matters most to our citizens in their everyday lives. In the years ahead, our national security and international policy must do a better job of putting the interests and values of the British people at the heart of everything we do. So this is the crux of the contradiction that this government finds itself in. They've just won a landslide election. Um, They've also won Brexit, Mm -hmm. which was largely based not just on rejection of the EU, but rejection of its attendant globalisation and the system that it's created. Everything... Things that are bad at root are global in their in, in their um in their manifestation, in mm. their local manifestation. These things are caused by globalization of movements of capital off offshore and kind of uh, destruction of um like uh destruction of jobs and destruction of communities like that. They, these are economic things that are operate under globalization. So it's it, they've they've straight up just said in this report, oh no, it's not that people rejected it, it's just we didn't do a better job explaining why it's good. Yeah. Which is the fucking Labour Party's position. 
they sound like new labor yeah. like in its in its later years in its dotage yeah. of saying oh no we did so much good for them but we just didn't explain why yeah yeah it sounds like a new labor document it's crazy uh the government will need to combine a planned strategy which sets long-term objectives anticipates challenges along the way and charts a course towards them with an adaptive approach Essential to this is deeper integration across government, building on the fusion doctrine introduced in the 2018 National Security Capability Review. Uh, essentially, what they're going to do, uh, what the fusion doctrine is, is whenever Russia or a threat emerges, they get together with the US and perform the fusion dance from Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it just never seems to work as we always end up with either a bloated oaf or an enfeebled old man, so just like in Dragon Ball Z. Um, the logic of integration is to make more finite resources within a more competitive world in which the speed of adaptation can provide decisive advantage. It is a response to the fact that adversaries and competitors are already acting in a more integrated way, fusing military and civilian technology, increasingly blurring the boundaries between war and peace, prosperity and security, trade and development, and domestic and foreign policy. It also recognises the fact that the distinction between economic and national security is increasingly redundant. The t- I love that line. The, the line is this distinction between economic and national security is increasingly redundant. I can't believe that the British cabinet became tankies. <laughs> I can't believe they all became anti-imperialist Marxists in seeing that the economy and so-called national security are essentially the same issue for a capitalist state. Um, and like, yeah, it's also like, I don't know how the British populace feels. I'd be interested. But like, can you think of like, any wars that the British state has been involved in in the last 200 years that haven't been almost entirely economic at heart. Like, I can think of, like, three. Napoleonic Wars, World War I, and World War Two, And that's counting World War One, which... Uh, mm-hmm. Like, that's like they, they might have been considered existential threats, but, like, literally every British war is economic. Mm. The fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, the other concerning thing, blurring the boundaries between war and peace. Kind of suggesting that because that's what Russia and China do, that's what the West has to do. Don't worry, you'll always be at war. Yeah. Don't uh-huh. that. I love how all this like talk of speed of adaptation, like um, uh, logic of integration, use of finite resources, all of it is such fucking unbelievable corporate speak and you can you know absolutely that it will never ever work this way yeah. like like whatever they do it will it will never you will never have an adaptive state i cannot think of a less adaptive country in the world than the uk this isn't just talking about oh yeah your population is really old-fashioned and old and yeah. old pensions and all that shit i don't mean that i mean like the uk is unbelievably fragile atomized like there's barely any connection between fucking regions between mm. counties but it's this country with this massively overpowerful top heavy state and a ruling and like ruling class yeah you know they can't they literally can't have productivity gains without making you all work 55 hours a week like yeah. there is no adaptation there and literally oh when everyone stops working 55 hours a week everything falls apart mm. nothing can open nothing can work yeah you know continues uh finally the uk will also bring an integrated approach to working with others around the world that is we will combine hard and soft power harness the public and private sector and deploy british expertise from inside and outside government in pursuit of national objectives so as far as i can read it that's you're going to employ deloitte and have private military companies like that's awesome 
it's just like, oh, no, we're going to combine the best of public sector, which is basically unlimited money, <laughs> and the best of the private sector, companies that want unlimited money. <laughs> well, it's worked all the way through Rona. <laughs> it's, it's worked for the last 30 years, yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, so they then, uh, this report splits um, the things it wants to talk about into continuities and changes, right? So... Continuities, they say the United States will remain the most important bilateral relationship. We will reinforce our cooperation in traditional policy areas, such as security and intelligence, mm -hmm. and seek to bolster it where together we can have a greater impact, such as in a tackling illicit finance. And if there's anything that the US and UK would know about, <laughs> it's illicit finance. Um, reiterates their commitment to NATO, and that's really it for continuities. They're trying to make it seem as if it's this... Uh, this new thing, but under the changes section, they say, shaping the international order of the future, we will move from defending the status quo within the post-Cold War international system to dynamically shaping the post-COVID order, extending it in the future frontiers of cyberspace and space and protecting democratic values. This will require active diplomacy, especially in using regulatory diplomacy to influence the rules, norms, standards, governing technology, and the digital economy. It will also require us to maximise our convening power and to do more to win elections for senior positions within multilateral institutions. I couldn't quite pass what this was actually trying to say, because like it says, moving from post-Cold War status quo, which is unparalleled US hegemony, Yeah, like a the sole superpower. Are they trying to kind of say this is the end of that? I mean, I'm guessing not, because, mm. like, to me right now, it seems like the post-COVID order is basically exactly the same. Yeah. Like, it doesn't seem like it's been shattered. No. It seems like a lot has been uh, disrupted and a lot of people have suffered. But the actual contours and the flows of the world economy, mm. as soon as that lockdown's over and as soon as COVID's not a thing anymore, it's going to spring back might not work, but mm. it's going to spring back to the same shape it was, or it's, it's going to try to. Yeah. It continues, we will adopt a comprehensive cyber strategy to maintain the UK's competitive edge in this rapidly evolving domain. Mm. We will build a resilient and prosperous digital UK and make much more integrated, creative and routine use of the UK's full spectrum of levers, including the National Cyber Force's offensive cyber tools to detect, disrupt and deter our adversaries. What it means is, new UK, everyone get on Second Life. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine, like, oh, no, we need to, like, uh, hack into the UK's internet. Ah, um, oh, we can't get through. All it is is regional Facebook groups, <laughs> rabid transphobes, not mad journalists, and a thousand anonymous doctor, footballer, and lawyer, and copper Twitter accounts. <laughs> There's one guy who just follows everyone saying anti-Semite. <laughs> we can't get past this. Ah, <laughs> Um, they also have a section on space. We will mm -hmm. make the UK a meaningful actor in space with an integrated space strategy which link brings together military and civil space policy for the first time. Mm -hmm. We will support the growth of the UK commercial space sector and ensure the UK has the capabilities to protect and defend our interests in a more congested and contested space domain, including through the new Space Command and the ability to launch British satellites from Scotland by 2022. Promising um, to send more money to Scotland. <laughs> Yeah, essentially. We're going to put it in Scotland because, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm quite interested in this, like, this new... 
it seems like this really new twisted interest in space because like with Elon Musk putting up his putting up his rockets and the mm. Trump space force and everything and everyone's like oh yeah no space is the future suddenly and I'd, I'd actually be quite interested in doing an episode on this or like hearing from someone as to why they think space travel has kind of undergone this resurgence like not because no one wants to go to France not, well not the te- yeah not the technological reasons necessarily but the sociological reasons why yeah. space travel gets popular like i get the whole you know the frontier has disappeared yeah. capitalism is everywhere it can't grow on the planet so it has to look for somewhere else it has to look for a new frontier yeah but like there's no real ideological pride on the line like there was in the cold war and like the costs involved and the risks they must be hugely high like yeah the only thing I can think of, like in a materialist sense, is are we simp- is everyone simply building their own like satellite launch pads because they can't use the Russian ones anymore? Because all of the all of the sites used to use the old Russian yeah. like, cosmodromes and stuff like that. You know? Yeah, maybe they can't use them anymore because of this, like yeah, this cooling in relations. Mm. Um. Okay, so then we have a section on how the report sees the strategic context. How it's going to change between now and twenty thirty? Okay, um, this is like how they see the world developing over the next over the next decade. Um, the U.S. will remain an economic, military, and diplomatic superpower, and the U.K.'s most important ally. Mm-hmm. The Euro-Atlantic region will remain critical. Blah 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 blah. Then they list off a whole load of countries with really nice language that okay. describes their relations. It boils basically down to. Our long-standing French alliance, our essential ties with Germany, our historic ties with Ireland, Saudi Arabia and Israel, <laughs> our cultural links with India. <laughs> um, but of course, the only one re- anyone really wants to know about is China and Russia, so mm-hmm. they have their own sections. Um, it says, Russia will remain the most acute direct threat to the UK, and the US will continue to ask more from its allies in Europe in sharing the burden of collective security. The UK respects the people, culture, and history of Russia. However, until relations with its government improve, we will sorry citation needed there. (laughs) We will actively deter and defend against the full spectrum of threats emanating from Russia. Through NATO, we will ensure a united Western response, combining our military, diplomatic, intelligence assets. Blah blah blah. We will uphold international rules and norms and hold Russia to account for breaches of these, working with our international partners as we did after the Salisbury attack. Uh, we will also support others in the Eastern European neighbourhood and beyond to build their resilience to state threats. This includes Ukraine, where we will continue to build the capacity of its armed forces. Training them. Now, yeah. Proxy war. Hmm. Um, you know how it says, um, until relations with its government improves. So hmm. I like obviously it takes in the very realistic account that you're never going to change the regime of Russia. Yeah. Like you're, you, you are not going to actively use that language with Russia because, you know, sorry, Twitter liberals. <laughs> it's not realistically going anywhere because you can't. Yeah. I know you've gotten, I know Eustonites have gotten used to sitting on this big old pile of arms and armaments, but <laughs> it's not going to change anything this time. Mm. Um, and, you know, why would you want to change the system of government despite, you know, your differences with its leader or its government or whatever? Like, there's no real, like real difference between the Russian government and other governments like it's more chaotic and it has a disregard for certain norms like assassinating people like their citizens in other countries yeah like that's literally it they could kill as many of their own citizens as they wanted on their in Russia Mm. and it wouldn't have this you know yeah also you know a lot of money a lot of money in Russia coming here so 
you know, it's back to the same old kind of def- weird defensive posture. Mm. It's like back to the old days. Um, yeah. So, and to tackle Russia, your most obvious thing is to just have it engage in proxy wars for the next 30 years until Putin's dead and the state collapses, you know, which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, expensive for Russia, inconvenient, but, you know, misery for the people who actually fucking live there. Yeah. Thanks, the UK. Um, next, we have China. Uh, about China, they say, um, as a systemic competitor, China's increasing power and international assertiveness is likely to be the most significant geopolitical factor of the 2020s. China also presents the great biggest state-based threat to the UK's economic security. We will require a robust diplomatic framework for this relationship that allows us to manage disagreements, defend our values, and preserve space for cooperation where our interests align. <laughs> we will continue to pursue a positive economic relationship, including deeper trade links and more Chinese investment in the UK. At the same time, we will not hesitate to stand up for our values and our interests where they are threatened, or when China acts in breach of existing agreements. The UK has responded to China's actions in Hong Kong, for example, by creating a new immigration route for British nationals and their eligible family members and dependents, and to China's human rights violations in Xinjiang through measures to ensure that British organisations are neither complicit in nor profiting from them. What the fuck? Hmm. You are fucking invested in China and China is invested in this country up to the fucking hill and you somehow think that the Chinese state is not like you're not complicit no, in the no, no, Chinese state no, no. but the whatever money, that is but the money we gave them we labelled not for genocide <laughs> and if the Chinese don't listen to that note <laughs> then oh boy howdy will I we came across ticked a... off and label the next pile of money with like two exclamation points when I was um, looking looking into this, of course, I found the most blatant kind of hypocritical thing. Mm. So according to a report by Privacy International in 2019, um, the UK has this thing called Project Hunter, mm-hmm. which is essentially packaging up and selling uh, the training equipment and technology for its border program mm-hmm. and for its uh, for Prevent, you know, the Prevent program, the anti-radicalization program. Yeah. Um, and so it has actually been selling and training Chinese authorities in the use of the Prevent program in Xinjiang. Oh, do, oh, the best thing as well. Sorry, I just realized. The best thing is the funds for that, that comes out of that 0.7 <laughs> overseas aid budget. Of course budget. it fucking does. Because, I mean, like, yeah, it, again, it's realistic because, like, what are you going to do about China? Like, you, yeah. you literally can't do anything about it. Yeah. This is the difference between, like, big man rhetoric in England itself, in the UK itself, and how it actually has to be. Yeah. Because, like, I feel like there's a lot that's kind of easing a post-imperial melancholic population to realising, like, oh, no, you literally can't do that. If Suez didn't convince you fucking six, 70 years ago... And everything since hasn't convinced you. It's not you who did all this stuff, who shaped the world order. It's the US with you as its lapdog. Mm. You as like a ride-along. I'm sorry yeah. it is. Like, yeah. Maybe they're trying to, yeah. And taking this more realistic thing we're trying to, like, you couldn't, you couldn't blockade its goods if you tried. Yeah. You couldn't not buy Chinese. Yeah. Um, 
has anyone come over yet from Hong Kong? This immigration thing has it started yet? I don't know. Um, the city's nearly complete for them, like that guy suggested. <laughs> the, the, the city, on, the, the city on the abandoned coast of Great Britain, that all the Hong Kong people were going to live in and create capitalist magic. Um, they, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to look into that. Hmm. Um, so another thing it sees, a great power competition and the opportunism of states such as Russia, Iran and North Korea are key factors in the deterioration of the security environment and the weakening of the international order. But the dynamics of systemic comp- competition are more complex and the UK faces threat from a wider range of states. Um, non-state actors participate in this competition. They often use the same methods such as cyber attacks and disinformation to target our citizens and exploit our openness for their own gain. And the states increasingly work with non-state actors to achieve their goals, including as proxies in conflict. It's like, that's what you're doing in Russia! Yeah. You're literally cohering with non-state actors to achieve their goals. <laughs> they call themselves the Iranian state now, the, the Ukrainian state now, but they were the Atsov Battalion like <laughs> six years ago or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is funny how whenever you talk about this stuff, overwhelming funding and support from US right-wing organisations to help win you an election... <laughs> <laughs> never really counts no. you know um they talk about the proliferation of chemical biological and nuclear weapons um they talk about how the advantages offered by high-tech capabilities may be eroded by affordable easily available low-tech threats such as drones remember when um the houthis um shut down like 50 percent of saudi arabia saudi arabian oil consumption yeah like, development that was fucking incredible amazing <laughs> um uh, Russia will be more active around the wider European neighbourhood. Iran and North Korea will continue to, to destabilise their regions. Um, China will pose an increasing risk to US inter- UK interests. Um, let's, I'll get to the bit. Alongside our allies, the UK will hold Iran to account for its nuclear activity, remaining open to talks on a more comprehensive nuclear and regional deal. We will also remain the most engaged non-regional partner on North Korea's nuclearization and on sanctions enforcement. I love how they constantly tell themselves when they like have to list threats like this, because yeah. it's like you, fuck Iran, you fucking piece of shit. This is your final warning. Stand <laughs> down. Yeah. Um, you were, you know, you have never even suggested that you will actually develop nuclear weapons or target the UK <laughs> with your nuclear weapons, but you are a threat to our national security. And if you move, I will end you. To also, China, I wish you a pleasant evening. <laughs> <laughs> also. How how often do you think North Korea thinks about us? <laughs> yeah, because do we have direct... It's not even like you have a historical association, because the historical association is with the US and China. Yeah. And Japan, obviously. Yeah. Not really the UK. I just like the idea of, like, look, North Korea, you better... And then, like, excuse me, who are you? <laughs> I just... It's like, this has been going back and forth now with Iran for, like, it, literally its entire history. Yeah. And it's like, oh, we are going to, we're going to get real serious on you, Iran, unless yeah. you sign this deal that we reneged on last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's so beautiful as well, because the, the comparison with Russia and China, it's like, Russia is like, you are an existential threat to us. You were go. You were doing so well, Russia. And then Putin, you broke my heart. I know what you did. You broke my heart. <laughs> they make some more predictions uh, in the report. Um, so they predict the rise of the global of a new global middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, 
The rapid growth of emerging markets is expected to increase the size of the global middle class from 3.8 billion people in 2018 to 5.3 billion people in 2030, increasing opportunities for trade in higher value-added goods and services. This will offer considerable opportunities for countries like the UK with its strengths in these areas. Yeah, that's definitely the feeling I get from the new from the idea of a massive global middle class. <laughs> I'm definitely thinking about the opportunity there, not the enormous increase in the consumption of resources and power that that would mean <laughs> and the on-running climate. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's hypocritical. The UK has had a middle class for like 150 years, but <laughs> might need to stop. Um, and also, higher value-added goods, it just means like jam. It's the jam <laughs> thing again. It's, yeah. it's Brit- British cheese. Yeah. It's, and, you know, riot gear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next, we have anti-globalization. Um, COVID-19 will likely accelerate the trend towards more regional and national approaches. The momentum for trade liberalization may continue to slow and cases of protectionism increase, driven by political and economic conditions within states and the increasingly aggressive use of economic and trade policy as a lever in competition with state between states. Uh, what was Brexit about again? <laughs> I just... There's this weird double talk in this report, like, because obviously Brexit has given them all the idea that they're going to be maverick buccaneers again. Yeah. They're going to be, like, like privateers yeah. going off to trade spices yeah. across the Near Orient. And when it comes to trade aggressiveness, like, on the one hand, they're winking at, at the UK public that is presumably reading this report. They're not reading this report, but, yeah. oh, no, don't worry, we heard you, you know, no more globalisation. We're, we're mavericks again, we're pirates again, we're traders, all that kind of shit. And also winking at, like, basically the Davos set, going, mm. look, don't worry, rule, rules-based global system, you know, we invented it, don't worry, don't you worry about me, mate. I'm, yeah. You have no trouble from me. You know, it's... And I wonder how that's actually going to express itself yeah. Like as the decade goes on. Mm. Continuing, they also predict a multipolar world, uh, talking about the geopolitical importance of middle powers, mm-hmm. saying increasing great power competition is unlikely to mean a return to Cold War-style blocks. Instead, the influence of middle powers is likely to grow in the 2020s, particularly when they act together. In this context, the Indo-Pacific, that word again, Mm -hmm. will be of increasing geopolitical and economic importance with multiple regional powers, with significant weight and influence, both alone and together. God damn, redundant language. Competition will play out there in regional militarization, maritime tensions, and a contest over the rules and norms linked to trade and technology. Again, what was Brexit about? Yeah. Um, Like, is this... Because they talk about middle powers and the way that they talk about diplomacy in this report is very much like, oh no, we can be like the best middle power. Mm. Like we'll be like, we'll be a member of everything. I think they're they're talking about appointing an ambassador to the um, ASEAN, which is like the Southeast Asian, yeah. like much looser kind of equivalent of like their EU or EEC. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a trade organisation with no like centralisation or links. Or Are they like going to say we're going to be the best because we're going to be on everyone's side? I think so. We're going to be it's, the it's, fun uncle. Because that was everyone that stuff. apart from Iran. <laughs> like, yeah, I feel like a lot of the talk is like, oh no, it's not going to be like the Cold War. It's not going to be like two different blocks, and it's not going to be like, um, you know, World War Two. It's going to be more like you know the concert of Europe after the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> so it'll be like peace in Europe but imperial expansion abroad and lots of different competing states. But they're balanced, and they're balanced by the UK. Hmm. 
in all of these different regions. And I think, like, I mean, despite the kind of commie rhetoric that's come around in the last few years, I think resurrecting the Cold War is probably too difficult to sell. Yeah. Because you can't really sell the ideological angle because no matter how much you might want it, there aren't really any ideological differences between, like, Russia and China or the rest of the capitalist countries, or at least, like, there's no ideological differences so significant they'd go to war over them. Yeah. You know, I mean, is this their solution for, is this the UK solution for post-imperialism? They're going to take it back to a pre-imperial phase. The army goes back to being super fucking small. Hmm. Um, you pretend that boats can solve all of your problems and that you can just turn up and then leave hmm. having balanced all those things out, you know? Yeah. It's a, um, and this leads into kind of their main kind of uh, split the way the, the ideology the ideologies that they will see as splitting the world mm. and that's democracy versus authoritarian straight back from the middle of the post cold war yeah. of 1995 ideological competition between different types of political system will increase on current trends the 15 year decline in democracy and pluralism will continue to 2030 accelerated by covid-19 tensions between democratic and authoritarian states are highly likely to become more pronounced as authoritarian states seek to export their domestic models, undermine open societies and economies, and shape global governance in line with their values. <laughs> like, okay, decline in democracy and pluralism. Mm, yeah, do you want to look at this fucking country? And tensions between democratic and authoritarian states. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> democratic states across, like, in the US bloc, essentially, in the Western bloc, have constantly gone out of their way to support authoritarian states if they're aligned to them. Yeah. The, like, the, the difference does not cut across ideologies like mm -hmm. that in no way. Mm -hmm. And aside from anything, I don't know if you've looked at a lot of democratic states recently, but, you know, it might be interesting to look at the key differentiators between democracies versus authoritarian states. For instance democracies have an election it's real but you have two people you can choose from no you don't get to choose them also your vote only counts in your area and that's if a load of other people vote with you oh and it only happens once every four years <laughs> oh and nothing can actually change because actually there are really important things that are beyond the ability of people in a democracy to choose between little things like the economy <laughs> none of those things can change <laughs> As opposed to those damn authoritarians, they can also sometimes have elections, but it's also really important because nothing can be allowed to change, like the economy, you know. Like, you know <laughs> I just, like, I don't understand, like, the only difference I can think of that there, there really is a difference is the rule of law. And, like, that is, like, means basic, the rule of law basically means sometimes democratic governments and states have to do something that they don't want to for a bit until they reform it by abolishing it entirely, like, I don't know, the right to protest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it sounds disingenuous, like, oh, yeah, of course, you wouldn't want to live in China, blah, blah, blah. Fact is, there's a fuckload of English, UK, and Western people, all of them different. Um, there's a load of UK and Western expats living in China. And, like, what you're actually saying is, like... Actually, in any system in the world, I wouldn't want to be the kind of person that the state has caused to detain or murder. Yeah. That's what they really mean. And that's possibly the lowest bar you can set <laughs> for any system. There's nothing particular about the system, but just don't be black in the US and on the streets. Or don't be a Uyghur in China. Yeah. You're never going to be affected. 
Um, so they go into some a lot of kind of stuff about how they're going to invest in science and technology. Not really much of a point to go into it here because it's long. <laughs> um, just saying that they are going to invest £800 million to set up an independent body for high-risk, high-reward research, the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, or ARIA, which this was um, Dominic Cummings' baby. Mm-hmm. This was what he always wanted. He wanted um, basically a UK version of DARPA. Okay. In the UK. And I think it's worth keeping an eye on that because I, d- I don't know how important it's going to be. It could end up being nothing or it could be kind of, as DARPA is quite like key to the direction that UK goes. Um, so that, that, that section there was like the key things that they see changing in the domestic context, in the, in the global context up until 2030. Okay. Um, next, they talk about some things that they're going to do to adapt to this. Um, there's only a couple of things we're going to list here. Uh, to promote effective and transparent governments, robust democratic institutions, and the rule of law, the UK will support strong, transparent, and accountable political processes and institutions overseas, including parliaments and political parties through the Westminster Foundation for Democracy. Now, hmm. the Westminster Foundation for Democracy is basically the a British version of the US's National Endowment for Democracy. Okay. Um, the only real news stories I can find about it is that it has... Currently spending around £750,000 to, quote, strengthen democracy in Venezuela. Oh. Um, It also refuses to disclose information about its activities in Venezuela due to security. It operates out of the uh, British Embassy in Bogota in Colombia. Very accountable, very Mm -hmm. open. Mm -hmm. Um, Job adverts for this foundation... um, demand that the applicants have to work with the British Embassy and, quote, contribute to the development of future business opportunities in Venezuela. Um, They've come out publicly in support of discredited parliamentary person Juan Guaido. Mm -hmm. Um, And when he launched a coup attempt in 2019, the WFD proclaimed that this was not an assault on democracy, but the other way around. So, Yeah. yeah. Basically, psyops, black ops. Yeah. That's how we're going to convince everybody. Like, look, okay, even if you were right and the, like, democratically elected government in um, in Venezuela was, like, the worst hmm. and, like, awful and shit as opposed to, you know, living under just what conditions has been imposed on it. Even if you thought that, if you had democracy imposed by this shadowy organisation oper- operating in another country, it's not the best advert for it is it realistically not particularly uh responding to state threats can no longer be viewed as a narrow national security or defense agenda including our responsibility to ensure the security of the 14 overseas territories and crown dependencies um in fulfilling these responsibilities our priority actions will be to secure british territory against physical incursions the Royal Navy will remain active in the UK's territorial sea, an exclusive economic zone, including by investing in new capabilities to protect undersea CNI, that's um, critical national infrastructure. Um, the Royal Air Force will continue to provide a 24-hour quick reaction alert force to defend UK airspace. And our new maritime patrol aircraft will patrol the North Atlantic. I only read this bit to say that like, the report is full of fucking redundancies like this. Like, yeah. That's a sentence that basically says the Navy will continue to be the Navy. <laughs> the RAF will continue to fly over the UK. Yeah. I, I don't, like, 
presenting it this massive like, oh, it's a reinvestment, it's a recommitment, and it's like you're just saying that that things will stay the same. Yeah. Um, there's also a bit about um, continuing to maintain uh, military presences in the Falklands, Gibraltar, Indian Ocean Islands. So, you know, like, I mean, if you thought that this Tory government was going to say, oh, that's it, they're the Malvinas now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's not It's not going to happen. Weirdly enough, in their list of um, overseas territories, they don't mention the British Virgin Islands, though. You know, the largest tax haven in the world. <laughs> Never name it specifically. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, other things they're going to do, they're going to take a whole-of-government approach to protecting democracy in the UK, supporting a democratic system that is fair, secure, and transparent. Our goal under the Defending Democracy programme is to ensure the integrity of the UK's democratic processes and sustain public confidence in them. We are enhancing government capabilities to ensure the safe delivery of democratic events. This includes operating structures such as the Election Cell, which provides a monitoring and response mechanism and the Cross-Government Counter-Disinformation Unit, our work programme will include introducing voter ID at polling stations, improving the transparency of online political campaigning with a digital imprints regime, and introducing a new electoral sanction to tackle abuse. Oh yeah, you better fucking believe the Tory party is never losing another election. <laughs> well, the thing- never, oh. ever, ever. Oh, Jesus. The thing- they were really shady in the last election with their online spending. Like... Ridiculous. They are a husk of a party that have about 10,000 full-time members that nonetheless have like hundreds of millions of pounds rolling around that party. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they also say they're going to enhance uh, efforts to counter disinformation at home and overseas, increase societal resilience to all forms of disinformation through a new regulatory framework. Um... And investment in the government's behavioural science expertise, horizon scanning and strategic communications will also help us to improve our response to disinformation campaigns. Like, for instance, um, I think it's quite important that the government teaches people that just because a Twitter account calls itself a fact-checking Twitter account, <laughs> it might not actually <laughs> might not actually be one, you know? <laughs> like it was in the last election. Quite important. Oh, yeah, I mean, so like... F- oh. They're gonna they're gonna be in power forever. We have to actually seriously start thinking about how to oppose this because like we're not gonna be able to oppose every single thing. There's no lever. There's mm. nothing you can press anymore. Mm. You don't have a party, you don't have like an electoral out to this. Mm. You don't have anything else. So you it's kind of worth thinking of what else there is. Mm. You know, they're not saying protest or anything like that. Like I'm not just gonna retreat to the to the old things. I just don't I don't know. I genuinely like I'm not Yeah, same it's like I'm not saying to the streets. Yeah. I am saying to that. But you know, like I don't think there's an easy answer to it, but like just bear in mind this is what's happening. They are not losing another election. They are not gonna lose it to they weren't gonna lose it to Corbyn and they're not gonna lose it to Starmer. They're not even gonna lose it to what whoever the Labour right put up. Mm. They will not put up with it. That's it now. We mm. have LDP Britain. Um yeah, so they finish off with some stuff on uh, like war fighting generally, uh, talking about how they will put a greater emphasis on addressing the drivers of conflict, such as grievances, um, uh, atrocity prevention and strengthening fragile countries' resilience to external interference. We will focus up on political approaches to conflict resolution, harnessing the full range of government capabilities with clearly defined political goals and theories of change this will enhance our impact and reduce the risk of mission creep or of inadvertently doing harm 
And I read that as you fucked yourself with Iraq and Afghanistan and now you can't invade anymore. Yeah. That's also like the thing that we shouldn't like with the defense review and with a smaller army and everything. We shouldn't put it out like no, like Iraq proved that they literally can't impose their will on another territory. Yeah. Like they can't do it. It's impossible. If if a territory wants to resist, they will and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. You know? I think it's kind of the main argument against like liberal interventionists in that they've grown up under an imperial system where they just assume yeah. that the UK has the power and just chooses not to use it. Like your Oz Cataries and your, yeah. you know, topple Assad. It's like, you can't. You yeah. don't have, you, you literally do not have the military power without committing genocide. You do not have the military power to stop people yeah. doing what they're going to do. Like, it's just a thing. I just And it just doesn't really go into their heads. Mm. Um they talk about uh, the report talks about the um, their approach to countering radicalization and terrorism. They're going to introduce a new thing called a protect duty. That's in capital letters, like prevent is. Mm-hmm. Um, a protect duty will make it a legal requirement for owners and operators of public spaces and venues to take measures to keep the public safe from terrorist attacks. Now, I don't know what that means. <laughs> it probably means more group four security officers yeah. everywhere. Yeah, I have to. I think say it means, it's a legal requirement. Means, yeah, and then like holding the company responsible financially if something happens. Like, well, look, you should sue the people who run the Manchester Arena because they allowed a terrorist in. That kind mm. of shit. Oh, and also, I've just thought. Yeah, it does take the heat off of um, you know, the constant MI five fuck ups where they don't detect this thing happening. Yeah, it's not their fault. Despite, not my, not my problem. Guff, despite it being phone. my job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not my problem. That's the problem of G four S. They also talk about how they want to use the armed forces to continue to provide support to emergency responses such as COVID nineteen um, through military aid to the civil authorities, MACA. Mm. And we plan on making greater use of the military reserves in supporting domestic national security Uh priorities. We will also consider how to extend this to a civilian reservist cadre, 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 for support in times of crisis. Hmm. Now that sounds like territorials on the streets. It does. Something like that, something similar to that. Again... You're, I mean, they're supposed to be recruiting, what, 40,000 extra coppers or 20,000 extra coppers or something. That's their goal. There are other problems with that mm. figure other than just, oh, it's because you don't want to. It's like, mm. it's not that attractive an option. You can't pay them that much. You can't pay them enough. You know, that kind of thing. Um, this, like, it's volunteerism again. It's like the, the Cameronite thing of like, oh, yeah, no, we'll just have a massive, like, charity, charity army that charities will be able to go, I need 10 people for fundraising. Yeah. And then you'll be able to send it to them. It's like, I don't, but then in support in times of crisis, it just, yeah, it just seems like, oh no, like militias. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> militias. Um, they have a section on climate change. Uh, they use the term green industrial revolution, which promises <laughs> offshore wind, flood defenses, and 250,000 skilled green jobs by 2030. Hooray. Good idea. I wish I could have voted for it. That wasn't... I'm not misremembering. That wasn't in their manifesto in any way, was it? Well, the Tories. Green Industrial Revolution. No. No. 
They also promise a, green, a sovereign green bond in 2021 because financialization of climate change has worked well so far. Yeah. Um, there will also be the first G20 country to make disclosures specified by the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, fully mandatory across the economy by 2025, because that's what Britain is known for, financial disclosure. Um, I think <laughs> I think what that is is basically making uh, like hedge funds tell you what they're investing in. Okay. Because that again, yeah. that is absolutely they're well known for, yeah, for being completely open and transparent. Yep. My favourite bit from the climate change section: um, they say through the proposed North Sea transition deal, we will support the UK's oil and gas hubs to diversify into new energies, protecting and creating jobs in areas such as the northeast of England and Scotland. Literally a week later, 24th of March, BBC News, more oil and gas wells are to be drilled in the North Sea. That lasted like a fortnight, a week, I don't know. Uh, eight days. Lasted eight days. <laughs> Nothing matters. That's the thing about this stuff. Yeah. Nothing matters. Um, and finally, uh, the section on migration. Uh, mm. As a force for good in the world, the UK will remain sensitive to the plight of refugees and asylum seekers. We have a proud track record of protecting those who need it. Really? Citation needed. In accordance with our international obligations, our resettlement mm. schemes have provided safe and legal routes for tens of thousands of people to start new lives in the UK. Since 2015, we have resettled more than 25,000 refugees across all our resettlement schemes, around half of whom were children, including many affected by the conflict in Syria. Uh, again, like most of this report, don't don't let the red wall know. <laughs> Don't tell your voters, because mm. they might be really, really pissed. And then it might not be a problem you can solve. Oh, who am I kidding? <laughs> and just on that, I love it when they use stat likes. stats like, oh, we've settled like so many thousand refugees. It's like completely yeah. destroyed, like avoiding the fact that conditions are considered universally terrible for refugees and asylum seekers. Yeah. Like so bad that they've actually rioted in various prison camps that they're kept in. Yeah. Um, they're put in the worst fucking housing with no fucking long-term support, mm. no ability to earn money. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the fact that, like, literally, Im- like, the issue of immigration, all immigration, refugees, asylum, all of it, has probably irreparably destroyed the political discourse of this country. Mm-hmm. Like, it's lit- It's literally it. It's the, it's the thing you can't... It's, yeah. it's destroyed it. There is no political communication now because it has been sharpened to such, such a point it's yeah. so red hot that it's just an ultimate win an argument mm. people are scared of it people are inspired by it people are motivated by it and it's the only thing that matters mm. you know that overseas aid thing is part of immigration that's yeah. essentially in people's minds it's ultimately the same thing it's giving money to foreigners yeah uh, so yeah um this report was like 90 percent buzzwords gray language and cliches but you really get that sense that nothing has changed. This is like 1998, new Labour. This is, this is that. Yeah. A cynical person might paint it as reapplying for membership of the liberal world order, mm. trying to distance themselves from Trumpism or Orbanism. It's like, oh no, yeah. A lot of words like deepen, will continue to, we mm. will ensure. Anyone looking for a radical departure from the last... 30 years, 40 years, is going to be very disappointed. Mm. Um, It firmly states the UK's adherence to NATO and really doesn't really mention the EU at all, but kind of tries to present this image of the UK as like this free nation careening around the world, 
obeying the rules, chairing international conferences without a care in the world. Um, and basically doing globalisation just like it did before. Yeah. Um, and the weird thing is, on the domestic level, I would argue that like, despite Brexit supposedly being this path-breaking event, that just like with everything else, business as usual is being treated as the successful resolution of Brexit. Hmm. everything's exactly the same. And if anything, everything is less chaotic and more comprehensible to the people who Brexit is supposed to appeal to. Like this report lists a bunch of like uncertain future cliches. So you've got biological and nuclear terrorist attacks being likely by 2030. Russia as an antagonist that realistically you can never defeat. Hmm. This weird dance with coming Chinese domination, this new multipolar world of like small states and regional blocks at each other's throat fighting over dwindling resources. And you'd think that would be like the usual fear-mongering like security state stuff. And yet, yeah, of course, that that view of things is going to terrify some people. But I fucking guarantee that this will probably be accepted as, as a positive part of the Brexit dividend. Hmm. I think part of Brexit's appeal was that it pinned the EU, and by extension the globalised world order, as the source of unsettling change, of danger that you couldn't quite... You couldn't quite define or name, mm. but you know people have gone on about this about the the conservative roots of Brexit, and I think like part of this was wrapped up with like the war on terror. You know, it, like Islamic terrorism was painted as sudden a, a sudden eruption of danger that came from nowhere, and that you really couldn't do anything to spot or prevent. Mm. And I think in the very last era of this of the war on terror quite a lot of British discourse about it has been that, oh, no, it's coming over from France. You know, it's like Islamic terrorism is, it happens in France. It's coming over from that, um, what's that housing estate in Belgium that they always say, oh, it's full of Islamists. Yeah, I don't know. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Suspicion of Muslims in the UK is present for definite, but most of the recent attacks and even like migrant crossings, they've been covered. They've been covered in the notion that, oh no, this is terror being imported specifically from Europe. Yeah. And now with Brexit, they can say, oh, that's over. There'll be no more random acts of violence. Uh, where there is violence, we'll be able to see it and understand it because it will come from antagonist states. Yeah. Which is sort of a, a reversion to kind of classic, classic warfare. Yeah. Classic geopolitics. Like, this document, there's probably about two... There's probably at least twice as much... Probably a th three times as much about states than there are about terrorist groups. Okay. States act like states, and terrorist groups are kind of unquantifiable. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. And it actually occurred to me that if you're now pushing the narrative that Brexit is settled and things are better, quote, hmm. and you're dealing with a supportive audience that only really gets their news from TV... That like a relief from chaos means actually what we're going back to is we're going to have one or two comprehensible state threats. Hmm. Like we're not going to have terrorism anymore. That's what it's all going to be. Um, you know, for I think for the people who liked Brexit, the unknown eldritch threat is now going to be shadowy elites, cancel culture mobs, Black Lives Matter. Like it will be internal stuff. It will be people sneakily radicalizing your children and grandchildren to ask for fairness and equality yeah um whereas in the geopolitical realm it's going to move away from i think it's probably going to try they're going to try and paint it as a move away from the dark arts of terrorism of torture of overseas prisons and it's going to be a return to like this jolly marketable geopolitical like game 
Mm. Spies, competition for resources, you know, adventuring around the world to bring back spices from the Orient. If by spices you mean coltan. Um, and it's going to be, I think, probably a lot more reassuring to that audience. Mm. Like, military victories won by a small raiding party that are easier to turn into, you know, commemorative doc- documentaries and made-for-TV movies. Yeah. Bravo 2-0 is an easier story to tell than Dunkirk or 1917, if maybe not quite as inspirational. Yeah. Um, and an era of state competition is more comprehensible than a war of states versus non-state actors. But I think what they've tried to, the security state is going to try and salvage is the sense of unquantifiability. Now that's different, like from comprehension or prediction, like mm. terrorist groups, Islamic terrorist groups, you can't like you, they were always presented as you can't predict what they're going to do. You can't comprehend what they're trying to do. And they could do anything. They could do like, Anything from a small stabbing to a huge nuclear attack. Hmm. So anything was justified, but it was also scary. Hmm. It was also, it could come from nowhere. It wasn't just the size of it, but it could come from nowhere. With states, I can comprehend what Russia wants out of geopolitics. I can understand their antagonism on a state level, right? So I can comprehend it, and I can probably predict roughly what they're going to do. If there's a Russian dissident, they're going to try and kill them. You know, if... Um, the UK uh, does like puts out a spitting image with a style program with Putin on it. They're going to expel a diplomat. It's it's understandable. It's comprehensible. But I can't quite quantify what Russia wants. Like in the popular imagination, Islamic terrorism or communism or something like that, they want something from you. They want fear from you. They want conversion, whatever. But what can I do? What can modern Russia make me feel that it wants? Mm. Like, what do they want? More Counter-Strike tournaments? Like, I, <laughs> We already have basically the same economic system, the same banking system. We're the same type of, like, alienated, atomized consumer humans. Mm. Socially, psychologically, politically. They're not asking... Russia isn't asking you, for example, isn't asking you to become a better person or a purer person. Yeah, It's purely to be settled at state level. And that's reassuring to people because there's nothing I can do to satisfy it. Yeah. The war on terror asks you to become a better person. It asks you to go out and shop in defiance of the terrorists. It goes out and asks you to be a better father because the terrorists, otherwise the terrorists will win. You know, that kind of, it was very emotional and moral appeals to be better people in the face of that kind of thing. Mm. Russia doesn't demand that. Like Mm. it doesn't need, the the security state now, it doesn't need you to um, be constantly on edge and constantly in fear of everything that moves. It does need one or two threats that will justify it being able to do absolutely anything. Mm. It needs the maximum amount of manoeuvrability for friends to become enemies and enemies to become allies and to be able to sell that to a population and for them to believe it. Mm. And ultimately, this report, of course, isn't really meant for public consumption. It's for the people in the class who, over the next decade, will be translating and manufacturing the consent for each incident, each strike, each border skirmish, each treaty, whatever you want. Like in the way that you see on what you see on the catwalk isn't what you wear, but it's what will influence the things that you wear in a year's time. Mm. This class, this persuading class, no matter what, whether the state is democratic or authoritarian, whether it's a protagonist or antagonist, as long as the fundamental capitalist prote- processes like remain, they couldn't give a shit about who's doing it. If Russia like somehow conquers Britain or something and they keep the same system, they don't give a shit. 
They'll adapt to exactly the same. Like they'll adapt to like Boris doing authoritarian capitalism. They'll adapt to a multipolar world of competing states. Like it really doesn't matter. And the one key assurance of this report is that conflict will happen. Mm. And what permits this kind of dispassionate bird's eye view, this elite rarefied air in which you can completely affirm your commitment to a global order that says it does its best for everyone and is worth fighting and dying to protect Mm. that nonetheless produces this competition over resources this edging towards war all the time this terror and it can be discussed in such glowing yet dispassionate terms as part of and the point is that as part of the imperial core if you're one of these people as part of the imperial core the war isn't going to come for you if the Mm. crisis comes it's not going to come for you Mm. like as that class of people becomes more and more separate that the people who wrote this report and they're the people who will read this report and then will then take it take it on as that transnational class becomes more and more separate as that ruling class becomes more and more separate their objectives become more and more distant from an actual ethical global regime that works for the people Mm. and if you're wondering whether you'll be in that imperial core that gets protected when the crisis comes when the war comes if you don't understand why russia is an enemy but why Saudi Arabia is a strategic partner, maybe that adaptable class doesn't include you. Mm. Uh, That's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast, follow me at BM Bergamo, follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Fighting am the least about the fighting game When Mr. Hoover said to cut my...